0: Welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you, as always, for listening. In the last episode of our series on the life and times of American politician Huey Long, we covered the remainder of Huey's term as governor of Louisiana, following a failed attempt to remove him from office. Impeachment had a profound effect upon Huey. He emerged from the ordeal feeling emboldened to pursue his political agenda by any means, regardless of whether they were democratic or otherwise. He struck back ruthlessly against his opponents, firing them and their relatives from their state sector jobs and even, on at least one occasion, having them kidnapped. When Huey failed to secure funding from the state legislature for his pet infrastructure projects, Huey made the decision to run for United States Senate in 1930. He believed that if he won this election, his political program would receive a popular mandate, thereby making the state's politicians, as representatives of the people, obligated to give it their approval. If he lost, however, he promised to resign as governor and never again seek elected office. His political career would be over. It was a massive risk, but Huey took it nonetheless, and he came out on the other side victorious, beating his opponent, the incumbent Senator Joseph Ransdell, by a wide margin. Huey did not take his seat in the Senate immediately, however, and opted to finish his entire term as governor beforehand. This is because he did not at all trust his lieutenant governor, Paul Sear, with whom he had irreconcilable differences. Sear attempted to stage a coup d'etat against Huey but was foiled in this plan, and as a result was relieved of his office. Afterwards, Huey effortlessly maneuvered his friend and longtime ally, O.K. Allen, into the governor's mansion. With a loyal puppet governor in control back home, Huey was now feeling confident enough to finally make the trip to the nation's capital and to take the oath of office as a senator of the United States. Huey's immediate reaction to the Senate and Washington, D.C. in general was one of instinctive revulsion. He called it the farthest place from the real United States that he had ever seen. Only a day after he was sworn into office, Huey was already on the train back to Louisiana. He claimed that he was heading home to help his family move out of the governor's mansion and into their new home, but the reality was that an old adversary was rearing his head once again, former Lieutenant Governor Paul Sear. The second that Huey had set foot outside the state, Sear made his move. He returned to Baton Rouge, and after having a judge once more administer him the oath of office, he set up his executive offices in the Heidelberg Hotel, across the street from the Capitol building. Huey, who was on friendly terms with the owner of the hotel, had him evict Sear from the property. Sear staged a tactical retreat to a different, seedier hotel, elsewhere in town, in order to plan his next move, but when he saw that Huey had ordered a detachment of National Guards to surround the governor's mansion, he once more gave up and returned to his dental practice. Huey's absence from the Senate would be a fairly regular occurrence in the future, Of the 137 days that remained in the current session, he was absent for about 81. On those rare occasions when he did make an appearance in the Senate chamber, Huey exhibited his clear disinterest in the committees to which he had been appointed, going so far as to resign from all four of them. Huey exasperated his colleagues with his flouting of senatorial decorum and his advocacy of seemingly radical policies. He spent much of his time ranting and raving against wealth inequality, which he considered to be the primary cause of the nation's ills. On April 4, 1932, Huey took to the floor and delivered the first of his many major speeches to the Senate. It was entitled, The Doom of America's Dream. Huey had hijacked ongoing deliberations on a message from President Herbert Hoover, in which he stressed the importance of economizing governmental costs and balancing the federal budget. Huey disregarded the President's words and the remarks of his colleagues on the subject, Fixating on the budget deficit was a foolish waste of time, he told them, because if they did not enact legislation providing for a massive redistribution of the nation's wealth, they ran the risk of widespread civil unrest and, perhaps, a violent revolution. He asked his colleagues how they could be concerned with balancing the budget when they could clearly see what was happening to the once-illustrious American dream. Quote, This great and grand dream of America that all men are created free and equal, endowed with the inalienable right of life and liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, this great dream of America, this great light, this great hope, has almost gone out of sight in this day and time, and everybody knows it. And there is a mere candle flicker here and yonder to take the place of what this great dream of America was once supposed to be. Huey's speech caused quite a stir in Washington, D.C. One press reporter claimed that, quote, no such stirring plea for the impoverished masses had been made in the Senate for some several years, End quote. The press marveled at the boldness of this freshman senator from Louisiana. Huey's speech also inspired revulsion in his senatorial colleagues, and none was more enraged at his audacity than the Senate minority leader, Senator Joe Robinson of Arkansas. Some words that are used to describe Robinson include conservative, arrogant, and imperious. He autocratically wielded his power over his fellow Democratic senators and expected nothing less than blind obedience to his orders. Naturally, the firebrand new senator from Louisiana rankled his sensibilities. One of his conservative colleagues claimed that Joe had a method for dealing with people like Huey. His strategy was to, quote, let him blow off steam, then tame him, end quote. As Robinson and others would quickly find out, Huey was not simply a man who could be tamed. In late May 1932, Huey returned once more to Louisiana. The occasion was the inauguration of his successor as governor, O.K. Allen. Allen's inauguration coincided with the official opening of the new state capitol building, and Huey was quite eager to witness both events. Governor Allen's weakness of character has already been described at length in the previous episode. His blind obedience to Huey had an almost animal-like characteristic to it, Huey's brother Earl liked to joke that once, while Alan was signing a stack of documents that Huey had ordered him to, a leaf blew into the room and Alan signed the leaf, believing it to be sent from Huey. He willingly put up with quite a lot of abuse from his boss, but never uttered one single word against him. Huey liked to claim publicly that he had no influence over Alan's decision-making, but the truth of the matter was that although Huey was now off in D.C. for at least half of the time... He was still, indisputably, the sole political boss of the state of Louisiana. In case Allen had any misgivings about who was really in charge, Huey would occasionally assert his dominance when visiting Baton Rouge, by unceremoniously ejecting Allen from his office and sitting in the governor's chair himself. Still, Huey was worried that other elements in the state government could lead Allen astray. It was for this reason that Huey had refused to endorse his own brother for lieutenant governor. In order to ensure that Allen was not subjected to any outside influence, Huey appointed one of his cronies, a young attorney named Robert Lecce, as the governor's secretary. Lecce's real duty was to act as a liaison between Huey and the governor, and to keep Allen in line. Huey also kept an iron-fisted control over the state's legislative processes as well. The ranks of his opponents had been decimated by the last election, so prolonged elements made up an absolute majority in both chambers of the legislature. Huey was able to see his bills passed, bills that would have previously inspired widespread outrage among his opponents, such as new and stiffer taxes on corporations, passed without so much as an open debate. Huey did not get along very well with his fellow Senate Democrats, especially his colleagues from the South. They, like Robinson, were conservatives first and foremost. They despised Huey not only for his brash mannerisms, but also for his politics, Huey naturally gravitated towards his fellow progressives in the Senate, who were, for the most part, Republicans. These were men such as George Norris of Nebraska, William Borah of Idaho, and Robert Lafayette of Wisconsin. These were the few senators who consistently voted to approve Huey's proposals. For instance, after he delivered the Doom of America's Dream speech, Huey introduced a bill that would impose a 65% tax on incomes greater than $2 million. It received less than 20 votes in favor. Huey's proposals were so consistently unpopular in the Senate that one senator claimed, quote, I don't believe that he could get the Lord's Prayer endorsed in this body, End quote. Huey was enraged at Robinson and Company's refusal to endorse his bills, so naturally he lashed out. Of course, this wasn't merely Huey's petulance put on display. There was a calculated reason for his subsequent attacks on Robinson and the party leadership. He reasoned that the best way to make a name for himself in D.C. was to attack the most powerful man in the room, i.e. Robinson. On May 12th, Huey took the Senate floor and began a lengthy diatribe against Senator Robinson and the Democratic Party in general. He accused Robinson and the conservative Democrats of holding views indistinguishable from those of their Republican counterparts. He went further to assert that Robinson was secretly doing the bidding of President Herbert Hoover, calling him the president's glorified foghorn. To illustrate his point, Huey told an anecdote from his experience working as a traveling salesman. Quote, The Democratic Party and the Republican Party were just like the old patent medicine drummer that used to come around our county. He had two bottles of medicine. He'd play a banjo, and he'd sell those two bottles of medicine. One of these bottles of medicine was called High Populorum, and the other of those bottles was called Low Populorum. Finally, somebody around there said, Is there any difference between these bottles of medicines... Oh, he said, considerable. They're both good, but they're different, he said. That high poplarum is made from the bark off the tree that we take from the top down, and low poplarum is made from the bark that we take from the root up. And the only difference I have found between the Democratic leadership and the Republican leadership was that one of them was skinning you from the ankle up and the other was from the ear down when I got to Congress, end quote. Huey continued his tirade against the Democratic leadership by using another familiar rhetorical tactic of his, accusing his opponents of being in the pay of large corporations. As proof of this claim, Huey managed to produce records from Senator Robinson's Little Rock based law firm that listed several huge corporations as being among his clients. At this juncture, another senator motioned to invoke a Senate rule that prohibits senators from personally attacking another member of the body. To this, Huey responded, quote, I want now to disclaim that I have the slightest motive of saying, or that in my heart I believe, that such a man could be to the slightest degree influenced in any way in any vote he casts in this body by the fact that an association might mean hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars in the way of lucrative fees, end quote. At one juncture, Huey's attacks became so personal and offensive that Vice President Charles Curtis, felt the need to tell him to take his seat. Switching tactics, Huey desisted from the personal attacks and decided to filibuster instead. He would take over the Senate floor for several hours at a time in protest of such-and-such a bill that he didn't like, in order to derail the proceedings. Huey's long-winded and often humorous rants drew crowds into the Senate chamber. One particularly keen observer of Huey's antics was a newly elected representative from Texas named Lyndon B. Johnson. Of Huey, The future president had to say, quote, For leading the masses and illustrating your point humanly, Huey could not be beat. I was simply entranced by him, end quote. Another admirer of Huey's was Hattie Caraway, junior senator from the state of Arkansas. Hattie had been appointed to the Senate when her husband, Arkansas Senator Thaddeus Caraway, died unexpectedly in November 1931, with a year left to serve in his term. Although a woman had never before been elected to the United States Senate, it was not at all uncommon for a woman to take over in her husband's stead in the event of his death. Hattie, who was herself no raging suffragette, did not make a lot of noise in the Senate. Huey and Hattie quickly built up a mutual admiration. Huey greatly admired her strength and resilience, while Hattie found his various antics to be a source of amusement. The two were not too far apart politically either, Hattie was one of the few senators who voted for Huey's failed proposals. However, all signs indicated that she would not remain in the Senate for long. There was to be an election for her seat in August of that year. Most believed that she would be merely content to quietly serve the rest of her term and be done with it. She shocked everyone when she filed for election that July. The odds were stacked against her. She had no political organization or wealthy backers behind her. Her six opponents all of whom were men, included some of the biggest names in Arkansas politics, including a former governor, a former senator, and a former Supreme Court justice. Most political observers put her odds of winning at slim to none. They suggested that she'd be lucky to accrue even 1.2% of the vote, mostly from suffragettes and followers of her late husband. On May 21st, Huey and Hattie had a conversation on the Senate floor. Huey had heard that Hattie was considering running for election, and he warned her against it, telling her that she didn't stand a chance of winning. To this, Hattie replied that she would go down fighting, and buried her head in her hands and began to cry. Later that day, Huey barged into Hattie's office and encouraged her to run. He told her, quote, We're going to put on a campaign they'll never forget, because I'm coming to Arkansas to help you, quote. One might be led to wonder why Huey would lend his efforts to this seemingly doomed venture. There were two main reasons. Firstly, Huey desperately needed allies in the Senate, and Hattie, as previously mentioned, was one of the few people who voted in favor of his motions. Secondly, and perhaps more importantly, Huey reasoned that if he were able to help her win election to the Senate, a historically significant feat in and of itself, he would be able to greatly enhance his reputation on the national stage, something he would have to do if he was ever to realize his dreams of becoming president someday. About this second motive, Huey was rather open, quote, I can elect her and it will help my prestige, end quote. Hattie knew that she didn't stand a chance of winning without significant outside assistance, so she readily accepted Huey's offer, albeit with two conditions. Firstly, he could not use the campaign as a platform from which to attack her fellow Arkansas senator, Minority Leader Joe Robinson. Secondly, Huey could not expect to control her vote in the future, Huey agreed to both terms. On August 1st, 1932, a fleet of automobiles departed Shreveport, heading north. At its front was a limousine carrying Huey and his bodyguards. Behind the limo was an assortment of sound trucks, motorcycle-riding state police escorts, and vans filled to the brim with campaign literature. The first destination of this caravan was the city of Magnolia, just a few miles north of Arkansas's border with Louisiana. There, they were to meet up with Hattie Carraway and get this campaign underway. On arriving in Magnolia, Huey must have been pleased to see the sheer size of the crowd. People had turned out from miles and miles away to hear him speak. Wearing a nicely tailored gray suit and holding a Bible in his hand, Huey began his speech, quote, I'm here to get a bunch of pot-bellied politicians off this little woman's neck, end quote. For the remainder of his speech, Huey fixated on his cause celebre that is to say, the redistribution of wealth. Posing a rhetorical question to the audience, Huey asked if anything could be done to save the nation from its dire economic straits. Huey then held up a Bible and proclaimed, It's all in here. The Lord pointed the way. A country was obligated to redistribute its wealth every 50 years. The trouble is that we've got too many men running things in this country that think themselves smarter than the Lord. End quote. Huey also obliquely insulted Senator Robinson despite his promise to Hattie to refrain from such attacks. Despite the fact that Huey's speech had very little to do with Hattie or the campaign in general, it was still a massive hit with the audience. Word quickly spread throughout the state of the spectacle that was occurring at Magnolia. A local politician took it upon himself to dash off a warning to the state's capital. This warning read, quote, a cyclone just went through here and is heading your way. Very few trees are left standing, and even these are badly scarred up. A newspaper reporter described Huey's campaign in similar terms, calling it a circus hitched to a tornado. As Huey and Hattie traveled throughout the state, they drew in exponentially larger crowds at every stop they made. About five hundred had attended the rally at Magnolia. A thousand attended a rally at Newport a day later. Four thousand attended a rally in Russellsville the day afterwards and 5,000 were in attendance in Hot Springs the day after that. By the time that Huey and Hattie had reached the state capital of Little Rock, some 30,000 people had come out to hear them speak, the largest mass gathering in the entire history of Arkansas. Over the course of just one week, Huey had delivered 39 speeches to over 200,000 people. He was positively exhausted by this grueling schedule, but his hard work inevitably paid off. When the results of the election finally came in, what they showed was indisputable. Hattie Carraway won election in a landslide, winning 47% of the vote and 61 of 75 counties. Hattie Carraway's victory in this election was a historical first. For the first time in the history of the United States, a woman had been elected to a full term in the United States Senate. She would serve in this position until her retirement in the year 1945. Moreover, this was an undisputed victory for Huey. He had performed a political miracle, taking a candidate who shouldn't have stood a chance in the first place and leading her to an overwhelming victory. Everyone, had he included, knew that she would not have won had it not been thanks to Huey's efforts. He had become a figure of national prominence, and he was not to be trifled with. He had clearly demonstrated that he was capable of wielding political power outside the borders of his home state, Huey, determined as ever to retain control over said home state, wasted no time in redirecting his campaign resources to an important Louisiana election. That September, there was to be an election for Louisiana's other seat in the United States Senate. The incumbent, Huey's bitter rival Edwin Brossard, was up for re-election. To oppose him, Huey had selected John Overton. Overton, who was then a member of the state House of Representatives, had been one of Huey's closest allies ever since he put forward his legal services in Huey's defense during the impeachment trial of 1928. The election of 1932 is described by at least one author as being, quote, "...one of the most corrupt in the state's entire history." End quote. Huey used every means at his disposal to ensure that Overton was elected by a comfortable margin, and as a result, the election was fraught with irregularities. In some places, results were declared before the polls had even closed. In other places, votes were being cast before the polls had even opened. State workers were ordered to vote for Overton lest they lose their jobs, and Huey spent thousands of dollars paying the poll tax for impoverished farmers to vote. These illicit methods worked, as Overton was elected by a margin of 68%. That year, 1932, it must be noted, was a presidential election year. The incumbent president... Herbert Hoover, had decided to run for re-election. Despite the fact that he was widely, and perhaps a bit unfairly, blamed for causing the Great Depression, the Republican Party nominated Hoover for president once again. The Democratic Party primary pitted the progressive former governor of New York, Franklin D. Roosevelt, against two more conservative opponents, former Democratic nominee and fellow former governor of New York, Al Smith, and Speaker of the House, John Nance Garner. Going into the Democratic National Convention that June, Roosevelt was the frontrunner, having won 34 of 50 states in the primary elections. The Roosevelt campaign worried that Garner and Smith's supporters could form a united front to deny Roosevelt the two-thirds majority that he needed to formally win the nomination. But this would not come to pass if Huey Long had anything to say in the matter. Huey had previously campaigned for Smith in the 1928 Democratic presidential primary, but had since become disillusioned with him. He had come to realize that Roosevelt was the candidate whose views aligned with him the most. Roosevelt had given a couple speeches recently, wherein he stressed the importance of wealth distribution, and hinted vaguely that he would enact such measures if he were to be elected president. Huey found Roosevelt's progressive rhetoric encouraging, and, in advance of the Democratic National Committee, he announced that he would be backing Roosevelt. He was determined to do all that he could at the committee to ensure Roosevelt secured the nomination. His plans had a bit of a snag when he first arrived in Chicago on June 27th, only to discover that his political rivals in Louisiana had made arrangements to dispatch a delegation made up of their partisans to the committee. This was somewhat of a recurrence of what had happened at the 1928 DNC, and just as happened four years ago, Huey's opponent's scheme was doomed to failure. Both delegations went before the Credentials Committee to argue their cases. Once again, Huey's speech won the day, and his delegation was allowed entry. During the convention, Huey worked hard to ensure that his fellow Southerners did not abandon their support for Roosevelt. Especially troublesome in these regards were the delegations from Mississippi and Arkansas. To the senators of those states, among whom was his bitter rival Joe Robinson, Huey issued a dire warning, quote, "...if you break the unit rule, you son of a bitch... I'll go into your own home state and break you, End quote. Both states maintained their support for Roosevelt. And, on July 2, 1932, Franklin D. Roosevelt formally accepted the Democratic nomination for president. The typically braggadocious Huey did not claim that he was single-handedly responsible for Roosevelt's victory. Huey was eager to do whatever he could for Roosevelt in the general election. He even turned down a presidential nomination from the populist Farmer Labor Party, as he refused to run against him. The Roosevelt campaign proposed that Huey go on a limited speaking tour of four Midwestern states in advance of the election. The states that were chosen for Huey were ones where the outcome of the election wasn't really in doubt. Roosevelt and his people were trying to keep Huey at arm's length, to ensure that he would not damage their reputation in any serious way. A month before the election, Roosevelt invited Huey to lunch at his estate in Hyde Park, New York. This would be their first time meeting face-to-face. Huey dressed rather inappropriately for the occasion, wearing a loud plaid suit, an orchid shirt, and a pink tie, a get-up that was perhaps tailored to rankle the patrician sensibilities of the Roosevelt family, as an indication that he was not one to conform. Huey spoke louder than social convention would have allowed, and dominated the conversation throughout the luncheon. Roosevelt himself betrayed no sign of irritation, but far less amused was his mother, Sarah, who asked, while Huey was still within earshot, "...who is that awful man?" It seems that Huey came away from his first in-person meeting with the presidential hopeful with somewhat of a diminished opinion of him. Earlier, at the DNC, Huey had told a reporter of Roosevelt's acceptance speech, "...when I heard Governor Roosevelt speak today, I felt like the Great Depression was finally over." That's a fact. I never felt so tickled in my life," End quote. after the luncheon, Huey told reporters of Roosevelt, quote, "He's not a strong man, but he means well. By God, do I feel sorry for him though. He's got more sons of bitches in his family than I do in mine." End quote. Nevertheless at this juncture, Huey still possessed a great deal of respect and admiration for Roosevelt. Huey carried out the task allotted to him by the campaign rather dutifully. Restricted to campaigning for Roosevelt in the economically depressed states of the Western Plains, Huey, much as he had done in Arkansas, drew in large crowds at every place he stopped. Democratic officials in these states informed the Roosevelt campaign of Huey's effectiveness, claiming that if they were in doubt as to any specific state, they should send Huey to it. Roosevelt won over Hoover decisively, winning the highest percentage of the popular vote ever by a Democratic candidate. Roosevelt lost only six states to the Republicans, including Pennsylvania. Of their defeat there, one Roosevelt advisor admitted that had they sent Huey to campaign in that state, he very well might have delivered it to the Democrats. Quote, we never underestimated him again. End quote. By January 1933, the business of the election was over, the Senate was back in session, and Huey Long took center stage. On January 5th, Senator Carter Glass of Virginia brought a proposed bill before the Senate. The Glass Act, if passed, would provide major reforms to the nation's banking sector, including, among other things, increased authority for the Federal Reserve, the separation of commercial and investment banking, and placing national banks on parity with state banks. And there was every indication that the act would be passed. It enjoyed broad support not only from the Senate, but from the banking sector itself. Huey bitterly opposed the bill. His stated reason for doing so was because he felt the act favored national banks over state banks. But in reality, it seems that his motive for what he was about to do was simply defiance of the big financial interests and of the party leadership. When the bill was formally brought to the Senate floor on January 10th, Huey seized the floor and began a filibuster that lasted until January 26th. Huey began his nearly three-week-long tirade by quoting the Bible. Despite not having been to church in over a decade, he proselytized to his colleagues like a fiery Baptist preacher, quote, "'Go to now, you rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you.'" Quote. Throughout the filibuster, Huey fixated on his favorite cause, that of wealth distribution. He mentioned the Glass Act only in passing and never really bothered to connect it to his calls for wealth redistribution. After the show had gone on for nine days, Joe Robinson motioned to invoke cloture to force Huey from the stand. This motion was defeated by only two votes, and so Huey went on for several more days. By the time January 26th rolled around, so many amendments had been made to the bill behind the scenes that Huey was compelled to compare the revised bill to a dead, rotting carcass. The greatly diminished Glass Act passed the Senate that day by a wide margin. Only a month after the conclusion of this filibuster, Huey took to the Senate floor yet again, although this time it was for a completely different reason. Back in October of the previous year, the lame-duck Senator Edwin Brossard demanded an investigation be carried out to determine whether his opponent, John Overton, had been elected via fraudulent means. Of particular interest to Brossard was the long machine's use of dummy candidates and the misuse of campaign funds. An initial hearing held in early October proved inconclusive, and the tribunal took their findings to the Senate, which would then determine if further investigation into the matter was in order after the start of the new year. In February, it was indeed determined that a more formal investigation was in order. So, Huey raced down to New Orleans to be present for proceedings. He returned to the Senate at the end of the month. After having taken over the floor, he read off a series of letters, allegedly from Louisiana voters, demanding that the Overton investigation cease immediately. Unable to restrain himself from engaging in personal attacks, he directed his ire particularly on Samuel Anzell, one of the presiding councils. He called Anzell, quote, a scoundrel and a thief and a rascal and a crook, end quote. But he didn't stop there. He went so far as to question the man's record in the First World War. Anzell, who is a proud veteran of the Great War, filed a slander lawsuit against Huey for $500,000 in the federal court of the District of Columbia. The suit was eventually dismissed thanks to some legal technicality. The investigation recommenced in October. Unfortunately for Huey's adversaries, the counsels had concluded that, while the election had indeed been rife with fraud, Overton would still have won even if a completely fair and free election had been conducted. Furthermore, they stated that while the state of Louisiana's election practices were a vicious and abhorrent fraud upon the rights of its citizens, Huey's methods were hardly any different than those employed by the old regulars of New Orleans in years past, and that to declare the results of this particular election illegitimate would have some severe ramifications. Their official recommendation was that all charges be dropped against Overton, and that he be finally allowed to take his seat in the Senate. Huey and company had once more emerged from the jaws of controversy and from legal trouble completely unscathed. Later on, Huey bragged that Louisiana's politics were, quote, cleaner than an angel's ghost, end quote. The relationship between Senator Long and President Roosevelt in the early days of the latter's administration was complicated, to say the least. Outwardly, Huey maintained that he and Roosevelt were on good terms and working well together. He consistently voted in approval of Roosevelt's New Deal legislation. He refused to publicly criticize the president for not enacting the specific progressive reforms that he had wanted, Huey claimed that he was confident that Roosevelt would come around on the idea of sharing the wealth, eventually. In private, however, Huey grew increasingly frustrated with what he perceived as Roosevelt's noncommittal and moderate attitude. As previously mentioned, Huey generally supported Roosevelt's reforms. He voted 80% in line with the president's legislative agenda. He told reporters, quote, "...whenever this administration has gone left, I have voted for it, and whenever it has gone right, I have voted against it." End quote. Roosevelt did not return the favor. In March 1933, Huey introduced a series of three bills that would advance his agenda of wealth redistribution. Huey had hoped that Roosevelt would order the Senate Democrats to vote in favor of them. However, his hopes were dashed, and his bills were defeated soundly. Still, Huey refused to break publicly with the president, telling reporters as late as June 1933, quote, Roosevelt and I are never going to fall out. I'll be satisfied whichever way matters go, End quote. When the public split finally did occur, only four months later, it was over the issue of patronage. The president had the authority to appoint individuals to federal jobs within the states, although typically the president and his cabinet conferred with the senators of a given state before making any such appointments, thus effectively giving the senators at least partial control over federal patronage. Officials such as court clerks, postmasters, and judges were all appointed in this manner. Additionally, Roosevelt's New Deal programs had created thousands of new federal jobs in Louisiana. Patronage was one of the most powerful weapons in Huey's political arsenal. It's how he maintained control over the state, by reserving the authority to appoint loyalists to government positions and to remove dissenters from their posts. Now that he was in the Senate, Huey expected to have control over not only state jobs, but over federal ones as well. Roosevelt, breaking with tradition, refused to consult Huey about his appointments. More and more, these powerful federal jobs within Louisiana were going to avowed anti-Long Partisans. The stated reason for doing so was the rampant corruption within the state, but Huey had interpreted it as a direct infringement on his power. Huey made no secret of his opposition to what he perceived as the interference of the federal government in state affairs. Quote, We've got bureaucrats, autocrats, hobocrats, and 57 other kinds of crats that are not only trying to run the United States government, but sticking their noses into the affairs of the individual states. End quote. In June 1933, Roosevelt invited Huey to the White House for a meeting in the hopes that their working relationship could somehow be salvaged. Huey got off to a bad start when he arrived to the meeting an hour late. He continued to display his bad manners throughout the meeting, by refusing to remove his straw hat while indoors, tapping the president's paralyzed leg to articulate his arguments, and referring to Roosevelt exclusively as Frank. To his credit, Roosevelt maintained his composure at Huey's vulgar display, But deep down, his frustration with the Louisiana senator's insolence had reached a breaking point. Huey pleaded with Roosevelt to relinquish his control over federal patronage, but his pleas fell upon deaf ears. Roosevelt refused to budge an inch on the issue, and the talks went nowhere. It wasn't until a press conference, held four months later, that Huey finally let his true feelings about the president known to the public, telling reporters to inform Roosevelt that he and his patronage could, quote, "...go to hell." Now speaking openly about his true feelings towards the president, Huey more often than not told people that Roosevelt had lied to him. He had failed to follow through on the commitment that he had made to enact wealth redistribution. Roosevelt, while he rarely showed any outward signs of dislike towards Huey, nevertheless neither respected nor trusted him. Like many other respectable politicians, Roosevelt was not a fan of Huey's anti-democratic methods and economic radicalism. He and those around him feared that if the Great Depression was to go on for much longer, America, like Germany and Italy before it, may very well fall to a populist strongman, and Huey fit that bill perfectly. In a private conversation with one of his advisors, Roosevelt was later quoted as saying, quote, "...it's all very well for us to laugh over Huey, but actually we have to remember all the time that he is really one of the two most dangerous men in America." And sooner or later, we shall have to do something about him. End quote. The other most dangerous man in America, according to Roosevelt, was General Douglas MacArthur. Long biographers tend to frame the conflict between Long and Roosevelt as a clash of personalities rather than a political struggle. A quote from author T. Harry Williams, quote, Two great politicians had come into inevitable conflict. Each was so constituted that he had the need to dominate other and lesser men. Neither could yield to the other without submerging himself and dimming his destiny, and instinctively each recognized the other's greatness and feared it." From this juncture, Huey began to oppose Roosevelt's New Deal legislation in the Senate. He was especially and bitterly opposed to the National Recovery Act, which he saw as being a sellout to big corporations. Every fault of socialism is found within this bill, without one of its virtues, Every crime of monarchy is here without one thing that would give it credit, end quote. Huey found once more that his filibustering, principled as it was, did not produce the results that he desired. The act passed the Senate easily, regardless of his interference. Congress adjourned in August 1933. Taking advantage of the downtime, Huey traveled to New York City. On August 26th, Huey made a sojourn out to the wealthy Long Island suburb of Sands Point, to attend a party hosted by his friend, the famous composer Gene Buck. Over 600 wealthy guests attended the event, and Huey, in typical fashion, seemed determined to make himself the center of attention, whether for better or for worse. Over the course of the night, he got extremely drunk, running from table to table, insulting the other guests. Around midnight, Huey stumbled into a bathroom and emerged 30 minutes later sporting a bruised and bleeding left eye. Finding the host in the crowd, Huey told him, quote, Gene, let's get out of here. I'm on the spot. End quote. What exactly had occurred during the bathroom incident is not known for certain. Everyone seems to have a differing version of events. Some claimed that Huey had insulted a woman earlier that night, and her chaperone had attacked him in the bathroom. Others claimed that the assailant was a police officer, who was on the scene to reprimand Huey for his conduct that night when he lost patience and struck him. Huey himself was understandably hesitant to speak out publicly about the incident. When he finally did, he asserted that his assailants had been thugs sent by the powerful Morgan family. The most likely version of the story, and the one that the press ultimately ran with, was that Huey accidentally urinated on another man's shoes, thereby provoking a punch to the face. As one can imagine, the Sands Point restroom incident caused a public relations nightmare for Huey his opponents in the press jumped at the opportunity to embarrass him. It made the front pages of the New York Times the following day, and publications across the country jokingly referred to him as Huey P. Long. Later that week, when Huey made an appearance at the National Convention of Veterans of Foreign Wars in Milwaukee, he was sworn by reporters eager to get a photo of the kingfish's black eye. As Huey struggled to make his way from the train to his destination, he called out to his bodyguards, quote, Bust him up, boys. Don't let him take my picture. Quote. One of his bodyguards knocked an Associated Press photographer over the head with a blackjack and smashed his camera against the concrete. The veterans in the audience reacted with cheers of approval. The crowd was not always on Huey's side wherever he went, however. Even his most loyal followers up to this point were ashamed of his drunken antics. For the next three months, Huey was subjected to hecklers at nearly every event he attended a level of popular criticism to which he was not accustomed. In October of 1933, Huey published his autobiography. Entitled Every Man a King, after his 1928 campaign slogan, Huey had been working sporadically on this book for a little over a year. It would be more accurate, of course, to say that Huey had dictated this book rather than wrote it himself. His method involved spouting off details of every event he wished to portray in the book as he remembered them to a diligently working secretary. The result is a book that reads rather candidly. His stated purpose for writing his autobiography was to set the record straight as it regarded his life and career. The obvious defect of the book was that it was incomplete, with the narrative ending in 1933, shortly before it was published. Obviously, Huey could not have predicted where exactly the future would take him but it seems that he felt it appropriate to publish an autobiography at this point in his life suggests that Huey was reflecting on the very real possibility that he might die an untimely death. Attesting to his relative unpopularity at that time, Every Man a King did not sell quite as well as Huey had hoped. Using a shell corporation, Huey had 100,000 copies printed. He had the book priced at only a dollar in order to make his words more accessible to the public at large. Still, disappointingly. The book only sold about 20,000 copies. From that time forward, Huey sought to distance himself from the image of the drunken playboy that had been exemplified by the Sands Point restroom incident. Over the years, Huey had indeed acquired a well-deserved reputation as a crude, mannerless rideneck, especially among the refined citizenry of both Baton Rouge and Washington, D.C. Up to this point, Huey had spent most evenings in D.C.'s nightclubs, bouncing from establishment to establishment, and getting progressively more and more intoxicated as he went along before ending his tour in the early hours of the morning. His table manners were infamously horrendous. A quote from long biographer Richard White, In some of the fanciest and most expensive restaurants, diners observed the kingfish crudely tearing boiled chicken apart with his grease-covered fingers, or leaning over his bowl and loudly scooping huge gulps of soup into his mouth. On one occasion, he threw his plate of oysters to the floor of the Heidelberg Hotel's restaurant because they were not fried to his liking. In many ways, he did not act like a normal human being, a friend recalled, adding that eating with Huey was always an ordeal. He would reach over and take your meal and eat it in front of you. End quote. Now shunned by the capital's high society, Huey decided to lash out publicly against them. In December 1933, He wrote an open letter to the Washington Social Register, demanding that his name be removed from the list of the city's rich, powerful, and otherwise notable people. In the letter, he asserted that it was not him, but the Washingtonians, who were uncultured. As evidence for this claim, he said that nobody in Washington knew how to correctly eat potlicker, a dish popular among the lower classes of Louisiana society. Quote, when I first ventured towards this nation's capital, I imagined that I might find the field of social practices that would grasp some of the finer mannerisms of which I devoted years of my life and study. I set to work to train some of Washington's social elite on the art of eating potlucker to no avail. My, my, how far behind in manners is Washington, end quote. Huey's open letter to the Washington Social Register was largely an empty gesture, yet another publicity stunt. The fact of the matter was that Huey had never really been a member of Washington High Society. He'd made few friends among his colleagues in the Senate, but he rarely, if ever, visited them on social calls. In the early months of 1934, Huey seemed newly resolved to establish a new image of himself as the sober and respectable statesman. To this end, he stopped his evening sojourns to nightclubs and announced that he had quit drinking and smoking, He also cut back on his food intake. No longer eating the gargantuan meals to which he had once been accustomed, Huey quickly lost weight, going from 200 pounds to 170 before the end of the year. Huey made another grand gesture around this time. He announced that he would finally take his wife Rose on the honeymoon that he had promised her when they were married all those years ago. His critics accused him of treating the honeymoon trip as a publicity stunt, and they were more or less right. Huey and Rose only traveled as far as Hot Springs, Arkansas. Huey ended up staying there for two days before returning to Washington, D.C., unaccompanied by his wife. In fairness to Huey, it was around this time that he was putting the final touches on his newest and perhaps most ambitious project to date, the Share Our Wealth movement. On February 23rd, Huey took to the airwaves to proudly announce the unveiling of the Share Our Wealth program. Quote, I contend, my friends, that we have no difficult problem to solve in America, and that it is the view of nearly everyone with whom I have discussed the matter here in Washington and elsewhere throughout the United States that we have no very difficult problem to solve. It is not the difficulty of the problem which we have. It is the fact that the rich people of this country, and by rich people I of course mean the super-rich, will not allow us to solve the problems, or rather the one little problem that is afflicting this country, because in order to cure all of our woes, it is necessary to scale down the big fortunes, that we may scatter the wealth to be shared by all people. We have organized a society. We call it the Share Our Wealth Society, a society with the motto, Every Man a King, End quote. The goals of the Share Our Wealth Society were hardly anything different than the sorts of things that Huey had been vocally advocating ever since he had entered the Senate in 1930, to solve the issue of material inequality, which Huey maintained was the greatest issue facing the United States at the time, a three-part plan would have to be enacted. Firstly, a series of taxes would be enacted that would prohibit any single family from amassing a fortune greater than $5 million, and would prohibit any single family from accruing an income greater than $1 million a year. With the revenue from these taxes, the government could then guarantee that every family in America would receive a lump sum of $5,000 which, according to Huey's calculations, was enough to provide for a home, an automobile, a radio, and other such necessities. In addition to this, each family would be provided with an additional annual income of $3,000. Special provisions were also to be made for other specific groups. The elderly would be given a monthly pension, college students would be able to attend university at the government's expense, and veterans' bonuses would be greatly expanded. Finally, the government would be given far greater control over the economy so as to ensure the gains made by the average American were not erased. The share our wealth speech set off a veritable firestorm of public discourse. The intelligentsia of both political persuasions found the plan to be distasteful. The conservatives among them denounced the plan as being little more than communism, while the left wingers maintained that the plan failed to address the true issue of material inequality, the ownership of the means of production. Moreover, both harbored serious doubts as to how Huey would be able to pull off such a massive scheme. Professional economists asserted that it would be quite literally impossible for Huey to enact the plan as he described it. Huey himself failed to articulate a satisfactory answer to such questions. When criticized along these lines, Huey would simply snap back, quote, Well, you don't have to understand it. Just shut your damned eyes and believe it, quote. While Huey's plan was unpopular amongst the wealthy and educated upper classes of American society, it did enjoy broad support among the masses. Huey envisioned the Share Our Wealth Society as a mass movement, and very soon after he delivered this inaugural speech, he was beginning to witness the fruits of his labor. Across the country, various local Share Our Wealth societies were founded. Within one month, their membership numbered over 200,000. Before the end of the year, there were 3 million and by mid-1935, there were over 8 million. The Share Our Wealth program catapulted Huey to new heights of national fame. The Capitol's mailroom was practically overflowing with mail addressed to Huey. Some letters were asking him permission to set up Share Our Wealth societies in their own communities. Others were merely thanking him for having the bravery to speak truth to power. And it is here that I will end the narrative for the time being. With both Huey and Roosevelt having reached new heights of popularity, and a presidential election coming up in the year 1936, it seemed that both men were on a collision course that would produce disastrous results, regardless of the outcome. Or would it? You'll have to tune in next time to get the answer as we cover the final years of Huey Long's life and career. Until then, if you have questions, comments, concerns, or anything else you'd like for me to address, please feel free to email me at Pod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can reach me via Facebook or Twitter, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. If you like the show and would like to help keep it up and running, please consider pitching in financially. This you can do either by subscribing to the show on Patreon and gaining access to bonus content, or by purchasing some used books from me off of eBay. Links to these sites will also be in the episode's description. Also, just a quick note, I recently listed a lot more books on the eBay page, so if you visited it before and didn't find anything that quite interested you, I encourage you to do so now. Anyway, until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, William Connor, signing off.